So who's been shopping this weekend? Quite unexpectedly, I was dragged out of my personal food and football coma <laughs> to go to Kohl's at 6 o'clock on Thursday night. There's just something about that phrase, it'll be like a date that has enough promise and enough threat that you just better go. <laughs> what I discovered is that I was not alone. There were lots and lots of people out. It is estimated that over 137 million people were either planning or at least thinking about going shopping this weekend. Another, uh, I guess not another, but additionally, 121 million people are planning or thinking about doing some online shopping tomorrow for Cyber Monday. All totaled, I think the estimates are somewhere north of $961 billion are expected to be spent this holiday season. Now, I love this time of year, but I definitely find it exhausting. Already, just about every weekend day between now and Christmas, I've got at least one major event scheduled. Uh, we have, again, much to my surprise, been shopping like mad. I've been online shopping after 11 p.m. on Friday before the discounts expired. Uh, unexpectedly shopping yesterday. We have been decorating like mad around our house. It's like a big Christmas explosion, right? And all the fragments haven't been picked up yet. This is the time of year where we spend the most money on gifts, where we go to the most parties, where we hang the most lights, where we bake the most cookies, where we wear the tackiest sweaters. It is a stressful season for some of us. Purportedly, only 38% of Americans say that they experience more stress during the holidays, but as one of those people, I don't really believe that number. I think it's higher. Uh, for those of us who are stressed about it or a little more stressed about it, we cite things like lack of time, lack of money, commercialism, hype, the expectations of, of giving and getting gifts. And in just four short weeks from today, we get to tear open our presents like velociraptors. Then, of course, we come here at 11.15. And then we settle in to eat for the rest of the day. It's estimated that the average American will consume about 7,000 calories on Christmas Day alone. 7,000 calories. Really, 3,600 calories equals one pound. Just remember that. It's a scientific fact. Do the math. So why do we do these things year after year? I mean, yes, it's a ton of fun, but oh my gosh, it's exhausting. What is all the fuss about? What drives this? That is the question we're going to be looking at from today through Christmas Eve. We're going to be stepping back and looking at God's big picture and, and how that first Christmas mattered so much, where it fits into God's big picture. My prayer is that as we do this, we will gain a greater appreciation for God's amazing plan, that we will find a, a renewed love for the meaning of the Christmas season, and that we will have a reinvigorated passion for that little baby in the manger. Now, today, we are going to begin back where the story of Christmas began, Genesis chapter 3. 
Now, there are many individual stories in the Bible. We love those stories. We tell those stories. We talk about them in Sunday school from the time we're, we're very young. But we also need to understand that the Bible as a whole tells one incredible, amazing story from beginning to end. That is a story that is told in four sections that unfolds across thousands of years. And it is this story that we really need to understand and appreciate in order to get the importance of that first Christmas. Our passage this morning comes in the wake of Adam and Eve's first descent into sin. It is spoken by God to them. Well, specifically, this verse is spoken to the serpents. But that is the setting, the initial sin, the sin that still continues to wreak havoc today. God is delivering his curse upon everyone who's involved. And yet these words we're looking at today, verse 15, are words of hope. In Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. As we delve into this verse, we're going to find that amid, amidst God's curse, he gave hope. Hope that dawned at Christmas. So we're going to begin first by looking at the hope that God promises in this verse. And we want to, I always want to make sure whenever we talk about hope, that we understand that in the Bible when we speak of hope, we are speaking of a confident expectation of what is going to come. Right? In English, we've lost that sense of hope, and it's more like, I hope I win the lottery. But when we speak of hope in the Bible, we speak of certainty. So we'll begin by looking at that certainty that God promises in verse 15. And then we're going to look at how it took flesh at the first Christmas. We begin by looking at God's hope amidst his curse. Genesis began with God's loving creation of a perfect world filled with perfect plants and animals under the responsibility and stewardship of Adam and Eve. When God surveyed his creation, he declared it to be very good. Genesis 1.31 concluded, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This is the first section of the big story of the Bible. This is God's good creation. But if we look at the world around us, a world full of war and terrorism, of protest and repression, of poverty and racism, of sickness and death, we realize that even on its best day, this world is not very good. It is a world that has been damaged at some deep foundational level. It is full of people who are selfish and damaged in some deep foundational way. And so the natural question to ask is what happened? What happened is that the big story of the Bible entered into its second section, the fall of mankind into sin, which damaged and distorted God's good creation. What happened is that in Genesis 3, the serpent entered the scene. 
carefully misquoting the words of God in order to sprinkle doubt and confusion in Adam and Eve. Revelation 12.9 calls the serpent, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. This is the devil showing up in chapter 3, the father of lies. And he spoke to Eve, and his lies kindled a mistrust of God and a desire to be equal to him. Now, God had only given one simple rule to follow in the garden. Life was easy. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good or evil, or they would die. But this serpent, who had, who had never proven himself to be trustworthy in any way, managed to convince Eve that it was God who was untrustworthy. He convinced her that God was lying, that he was jealous for his own power and status, that they wouldn't die for breaking this one little rule. Now, what could possibly make a person mistrust the God who made them? The God who walked with them, the God who talked with them, the God who gave them everything they had and who had always been faithful and trustworthy. What would it take to get someone to mistrust that God? Desire for power. If trust in God meant that they couldn't have what they wanted, well, then they were willing to mistrust God. The serpent convinced them that God was the bad guy here, that he was the good guy. He convinced them that by disobeying God's one single rule, they would become like God. Now, fundamentally, that is what has been wrong with every human being ever since, down to our day, down to each of us, whether we want to admit it or not. It is that everything we do wrong, every selfish and ugly choice we make is about trying to get what we want, regardless of whether it's right or not. It is about redefining good to be evil and evil to be good so that we can rationalize to ourselves whatever it is we wanted to do in the first place. Right? It is about making ourselves the masters of our own fates, declaring ourselves to be our own gods. And so the serpent kindled within their heart this burning desire for equality with God. He exploited the passivity of Adam, who was apparently just standing around like a lump. Genesis 3.6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And with that simple act, God's good creation was shattered. Given one simple rule, Adam and Eve failed utterly. Disobeying God and a desire for power. This was the first sin. Out of all of the uncountable sins and horrors that have unfolded throughout human history, down to the atrocities we see today, big and small, and with this sin came God's curse. A curse on all serpents, on men and women, and ultimately on all of creation. The serpent was cursed to slither on its belly, eating dust forevermore. It was cursed that snakes and people would tend to hate each other. 
right? Which is still broadly true. I know some people love snakes, but most people do not. Actually, I was reading an article in the Washington Post two weeks ago. It has been scientifically demonstrated that humans are wired to identify and hate snakes. Uh, in tests, even on people who have no prior experience with snakes, they are able to identify a snake in a camouflaged picture faster than any other creature, including yucky, dangerous, ugly creatures. We can identify snakes faster. It is born into us. God's curse stays strong. And as the curse unfolds, things got more severe. God next turned to the woman who is cursed to pain and childbirth, to ongoing relationship struggles with men. This, too, continues today. For Adam, the curse fell on the very land that he is working to provide food. In Romans 8, Paul says, All creation was subjected to futility, that ever since the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Work, which God had created and given as a gift and a responsibility, turned into a chore, turned into a difficulty, turned into pain. The world itself was twisted and tainted, distorted and darkened. And then God threw them out of the garden, never to return. Mankind's sin had separated them from the loving Creator who had made them, who had made them to walk and talk and relate to Him. That sin separated them, it separates us from Him, so that there is no way on our own to get back into the presence of God. And yet, you know I love the and yet. We serve a God of the and yet. And yet, out of the darkness of the very worst day in the history of mankind, shines these words in verse 15. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The first part of verse 15 is a general statement. It talks about the snake and the woman and their descendants, and they hate each other. The second half gets very specific. It speaks of he, of one single descendant of the woman. It speaks of you, meaning that particular serpent, the devil. We are only two and a half chapters into the Bible, and yet God has promised that one day, one single descendant of Eve would strike a blow to the head of the devil that would eventually reverse the curse. But that person would pay a price. He would be struck himself by the serpent. This one descendant was anticipated for centuries. As an example, in Genesis 5, we actually see Noah's father praying that Noah would be the one to reverse the curse. But we know he isn't. Verse 15 is sometimes called the Proto-Evangelion. It's a word that pulls from various Greek words to mean the first gospel. This is the first proclamation of God's good news that here in the depths of the curse... The darkest of days, the worst point for God's creation, amidst moral failure, the promise of death, a divine curse and a victory for Satan, God gave a promise of hope. 
I distinctly remember when I first understood the implications of this verse. I was reading through Genesis, and, and I had read it before, but this was the first time I made the connections and understood verse 15, and it blew me away. But I was struck by how incredible our God is. That here, at what is literally the moment of his enemy's greatest triumph, right, the damage to his creation, God already had the plan ready. He knew what needed to be done. He laid out his promise right there because of his astonishing and infinite love for us and his desire to restore his creation to perfection. And that is where Christmas comes in. Christmas is the dawning of that hope. At that first Christmas 2,000 years ago, Yet thousands of years after the fall, God set his plan in motion by sending his unique son, Jesus the Christ, into the world. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the miracle of Christmas. This is what we celebrate. This is why we run around to celebrate this day, to prepare it. This is what we must never forget as we get caught up in the hustle and bustle of Advent. Christmas isn't just the miraculous fact that Jesus was God himself, yet stepped into our world as a human being. It is that Jesus is the promised one who would strike the head of the serpent. That when he stepped into our world that first Christmas, he brought with us, with him, the hope for us. That amidst all this celebration by the angels and the shepherds and the wise men, this is why they are celebrating. Because hope had dawned. And he lived a life of sinless perfection and godly power that demonstrated he was indeed the Christ, the Son of God. He worked these many miracles to prove that he had power over sickness and blindness and deafness and muteness and paralysis and demons and sin and even death to prove that he had the power to reverse each element of the curse. Interpersonal strife, pain, suffering, burdensome work, and even death. Jesus proved that he is the peacemaker, the great physician, the one who gives rest, the one whose power extends to granting eternal life. At Christmas, Jesus entered into our world. And when he grew up, he proclaimed the good news of God's kingdom. As John affirms in 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared, right? The reason Christmas happened was to destroy the works of the devil. That is the hope of Christmas. Good defeating evil. That's what the fuss is all about. Now everything in Genesis 3.15 has already come true. Christ indeed was bruised by the serpent, by Satan. The devil worked the powers of this world to arrest Jesus even though he'd committed no crime to hold an abusive and illegal nighttime trial in which he was condemned to die for merely speaking the truth, that he was the Son of God. 
They dragged him before the Roman governor who had him scourged. Right, a word that's very antiseptic, very clinical. But the event is not. Right? To be scourged by the Romans is to be whipped over and over again by a whip made of leather thongs with sharpened metal and bone in the tips designed to tear the victim apart. To be scourged often led to death in itself. But after Jesus was scourged came the humiliation of the crown of thorns, the beating at the hands of the Roman guards, the mocking, the spitting, the painful shame of carrying his own cross to the place of his execution, and then the extraordinary pain and suffering of crucifixion. All right, crucifixion was so horrible, the Romans had to make up a word to describe the pain. Excruciating. That is the word that uniquely means the pain of the cross. Nails driven through the nerve centers of the hands and feet. Gasping and struggling to breathe amidst pain and misery like we cannot imagine. These were the final hours of Jesus of Nazareth. This was the triumph of the serpents. These were the last hours of that babe laid in the manger. Once again, the devil was victorious. He, just as he had tempted Adam and Eve into devastating sin that had affected all of creation, here the devil had humiliated and killed the very Son of God. But his triumph would be short-lived. Three days later, it was the serpent's turn to be struck. Crushed, really. When the Son of God rose from the dead, when he rose, fully restored, his body perfected, proving that all that serpent had managed to accomplish was a little bit of bruising at the heel. But Jesus did more than just come back to life, didn't he? Hebrews 2.14 explains the significance of his victory over death. Ever since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. At Christmas, he took on flesh and blood. That's what he's saying here. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. By taking on a human nature and body at Christmas, Jesus Christ struck the death blow to the serpent, the one that will lead to his ultimate destruction. At the cross, Jesus offered himself up as the infinite and perfect blood sacrifice that was required to deal with the mountain of sin and shame that each of us has piled up throughout our lives. By his blood, Christ purchased freedom and forgiveness for everyone who puts their faith in him as Lord and Savior, who asks God for forgiveness of their sins. As the writer of Hebrews puts it in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is what that babe of Bethlehem did for us. This is the big picture. This is what is so crucial to remember each year as we celebrate Christmas, as we build towards it throughout Advent. That in rising from the dead, Jesus opened the door for everyone who trusts in him to live forever. 
that because of his glorious resurrection, Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us this victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have victory over sin and death, those terrible forces that were unleashed by the fall, yet rendered impotent by Jesus Christ's redeeming work on the cross. The cross of Easter was the definitive moment where Christ struck the head of the serpent. But the cross of Easter was the inevitable destination of a journey that began in the manger of Christmas. So we are excited about Christmas because God's long-awaited promise became flesh. The beginning of the end was at hand for the serpent. In the beginning of the new beginning, the restoration of God's good creation suddenly dawned. The writers of Hebrew continues in chapter 10, verses 12 through 14, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, right, that sacrifice on the cross, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. All right, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is what that baby in Bethlehem did for you. He has perfected you. He is sanctifying you, and someday you will live forever in the presence of our loving and merciful God by the work of that baby. Now, as we look around, we see that this work of restoring creation isn't finished, is it? All right, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have individual hope. We have certainty of our fate, of an eternity in God's presence. But all around us, there are still signs of the fall. There is still poverty, injustice, racism, hatred, violence, sickness, weakness, fear, and death. And so that is why God made clear there is one more section yet to come in his big story. The final destruction of evil and the total restoration of creation to a state of perfection. That too will be accomplished by his son. Revelation chapters 20 through 22 make it clear Jesus will return in total triumph over the forces of Satan. But the devil himself will be permanently defeated. That takes place in chapter 20. Then chapters 21 and 22 describe the glorious future that waits for every believer in Jesus Christ as each element of the curse is reversed. God's creation will be restored to perfection through the eternal victory of Jesus Christ, a victory set in motion that very first Christmas. This is God's big picture, and this is what the fuss is all about. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the astonishing sacrifice and work of your Son, Jesus Christ, who voluntarily entered into this world, took on a human nature, flesh and blood. So through his sacrifice and death, all those who call on him could live forever, could have sins forgiven, could have shame washed clean. 
Lord, I pray that we would always remember this, always remember this big story and how Christmas fits into this, so that as we rush about over these next few weeks, we do it with a sense of purpose, with a sense of celebration for Christ's work. Lord, I pray that you would help us to share our hope and our confidence and our joy with those we come in contact with and what can often be a difficult and stressful season for people. Lord, help us to be a faithful people to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The call this morning is to share in Christ's victory. To share in his victory over the common enemies of every human being, wherever we live in this world. Sin, death, evil. It is victory given to every man and woman, every boy and girl who trusts in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But it is a victory that we each individually have to accept for ourselves. It doesn't come by me preaching it. It does not come by your parents telling you to do it. It does not come by your spouse telling you to do it. Right? It does not come by simply coming to church every Sunday, year after year. You must choose, do you believe these things? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you believe that he died on the cross to take your sin upon his shoulders? Do you believe that he rose from the dead? Have you confessed your sins to God and asked forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ? And if you have, if you have this morning or in recent days or weeks, then Christ's victories are your victories. And we invite you to come to the front as we sing so we can celebrate together. Now, if you're already a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've been believing for a long time or a short time, I invite you, use this time, these next few minutes, to reflect on God's big picture, what it is we're celebrating this Advent, what we look forward to at Christmas how his ultimate victory over evil got started on that very first Christmas. Give thanks to God for his wisdom, for his patience, for his love, his mercy, his sacrifice. Thank him that he never gave up on creation and that he never gave up on you. That good will triumph over evil and that that is what we celebrate at Christmas.